What if the foods we put in our mouth could positively influence the struggles related to depression, anxiety, PTSD, and mental health in general? And what if you discovered this connection wasn't simply something that fell under the general eat right and exercise guidance, but rather that the science was clearly demonstrating a measurable impact? Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today's guest, Dr. Christopher Lowry, is likely to have you sprinting for the protocilum. Dr. Lowry is an associate professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado. His research focuses on interventions for the prevention and treatment of disorders, including the things that we mentioned, anxiety, depression, and PTSD, with an emphasis on the role of the microbiome gut-brain axis in terms of stress, resilience, health, and disease. One of our coaches, Yvette Morton, suggested him as a guest, and I am so glad she did. Speaking of coaches, if you're looking to pursue your MBHWC-approved coaching certification in August, please do not wait. Our programs have all been filling up early, and this one will likely do the same. Details at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com, or feel free, reach out to us with a note at results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com, and we'll set up a time to talk through all your questions and all the details related. And if you're a coach, you do not want to miss the Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium in Estes Park, Colorado, September 17th through the 19th. We're already at record registration levels, so keep that in mind if you've been thinking about it. Now it's time to talk health, microbiomes, and more with Dr. Christopher Lowry on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Professor Lowry, big time privilege to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Really happy to be here. Thanks. So before we get into the connection with mental health, let's just talk the gut biome, microbiome right now. What are we learning? What, what exactly is that in a, a basic sense for our listeners? And then we'll build off of that and how it influences other things in our lives. Yeah. So the gut microbiome is essentially um, the genetic component of the gut microbiota. And the gut microbiota is all of the microorganisms that live inside our gastrointestinal tract. And that's a good thing. And this includes, yeah, that's a good thing. And there are, uh, of course, bacteria, which is what we think of when we think of the gut microbiome. But uh, we also have viruses, ar- archaea, and even you know s- small microorganisms, one-celled microorganisms that are a little bit more advanced than than bacteria, for example. So it's a complex community. It's it's its own ecosystem, and. You know, as humans, we essentially are striving to generate or develop a really complex, dynamic, healthy ecosystem because a healthy gut microbiome means a healthy person. That's Mm. really the goal. Now, some folks are listening going, wait a minute. So you're saying there's a bunch of little things in my stomach and I I should be happy about that? (laughs) I should be very happy. (laughs) You know, the, we we as humans have co-evolved with these microorganisms for hundreds of millions of years as as mammals, and we've in in a sense we've almost farmed out certain responsibilities, physiological roles to these microorganisms. And if if we didn't have these microorganisms, we would be very very unhealthy. Interesting. Um, they play a critical role in ensuring that our immune systems are functioning properly, that our physiology is functioning properly. And, you know, later in this podcast, we'll 
think about the idea yeah. that it's also important for a healthy brain and, yeah. and, and for our mental health. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So I listened to your Ted talk folks. You need to pull this up. It's good stuff. You note that the standard measuring stick of fruits and vegetables, as we all know, is, is servings. It's like, are you getting your five? Are you getting your seven? Are you getting your nine? But you say that, that doesn't tell the whole story. It's the variety that is as or more important than the actual number of servings. Talk us through why that matters in terms of the microbiome. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about ecosystems, a diverse ecosystem is a healthy ecosystem. And, you know, uh, the standard analogy is comparing a, a monoculture of wheat in a wheat field to, say, an Amazonian rainforest. And, you know, the Amazonian rainforest essentially is self-sustaining, right? I mean, we don't have to do anything to keep the rainforest alive. We just leave it alone. But with, with the monoculture of wheat, we have to use herb, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, all kinds of chemicals, maybe fertilizer, um, add water. You know, we don't water wheat fields typically, but, um, you know, it, it needs help because it's not a healthy self-sustaining ecosystem. And it needs these, these kind of manipulations to remain healthy. So what we're striving for is more like the Amazonian rainforest uh, as opposed to a monoculture uh, of wheat that has to be chemically sustained to be able to survive. And so when it comes to fruits and vegetables, there's been a kind of a progression of nutrition, right? We used to think of nutrition as, okay, how, how much carbohydrate, how much fat, how much protein, you know, yeah. uh, protein are we consuming? And, you know, that was our focus, right? But, but now once you understand that the gut microbiome is a critical part of human health, that really changes the equation because the gut microbiome doesn't really care about how much protein, carbohydrate, um, <laughs> and protein you're consuming. It, it cares about other things. And those other things, you know, are not even like, you know, the standard vitamins and minerals that we think about that, that we get from plants, right. In our diet, what the, the gut microbiome, cares about is a how many different types of microbes are we consuming and therefore uh you know we we're learning that that impacts the diversity of the gut microbiome right so this is somewhat unanticipated i know that this was expected the the american gut project which was led by rob knight and his team what is it was a citizen science funded project and essentially 10,000 people, over 10,000 people across the United States submitted their gut microbiome samples for sequencing. And when you submit your sample, you fill out this very lengthy survey. But there's one particular question on the survey that turned out to be really informative in terms of predicting the diversity of the gut microbiome. And by this, in its simplest form, I mean, how many different types of microorganisms do you have? How many different types of bacteria do you have? in your own microbiome. And the question was along the lines of, in an average week, how many different plant species do you, do you eat? And, um, you know, the options are less than five, uh, six to 11, or six to 10, 11 to 20, and 21 to 30, or, or over 30. And it turns out the more different types or species of plant that individuals reported consuming in an average week, the higher the diversity of their gut microbiome. And as I said, that was kind of un, unexpected. 
but it turns out to be a very powerful predictor. And a recent paper that just came out this, this week showed that not only is it affecting the diversity of the number of different types of bacteria you have, but you can also look at the composition. In other other words, what types of bacteria are present. And if you use the zero to five group as your comparison, you can tell someone who reports eating up to 11 plants, you can tell them from someone who eats less than five. Is that right? And then there's a gradation where the more plants that people are eating, the the more different it is from the people that are eating zero to five. And that doesn't tell us whether it's healthy or not healthy. The, the diversity metric is, I would say, by consensus, a measure of, of health. The more diversity you have, the more... Health, health in general. In general, you are. So again, it's the Amazonian rainforest analogy. And we know that hunter-gatherer populations like the... Yanomami, uh, Amerindians in the upper Amazon basin in South America, they, they have the highest alpha diversity of any human population that's been studied. If you look at the data, then people from Omaha, Nebraska, sorry, people from Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> I have a few friends um, out there. <laughs> have the lowest um, in, the, in the comparison groups that, that were being compared. And you, know, you may ask, well, why, you know, why, why is the diversity so important? And I, I'll, give a, I'll give a couple examples, you know, in, in terms of practicalities, why this might be important. And we know, for example, that about 80% of the clinically used antibiotics that we use in medicine today come from soil bacteria. So these are drugs that were basically invented by bacteria to kill other bacteria. In, in a sense, bacteria have been in an arms race for yeah. much longer than humans yeah, have been yeah. around, and certainly much longer than mammals have been around. And they've developed ways of uh, defending themselves from other bacteria. And we've capitalized on that by isolating these chemicals and using them as antibiotics. And so if you, if you understand that and you realize that that's where antibiotics come from, that many of the bacteria in our microbiome can make these antibiotics. And the more different types of bacteria that you have, the more likely it is that you have a broad spectrum antibiotic profile that will keep pathogens from getting a foothold and, and uh, taking over the ecosystem, right? Okay. And so that's just one example. I mean, we come up with many other kind of tangible examples of why it's important to have that diverse microbiome. So the, the 30 number jumped out to me when you mentioned that in your talk and, and some of the things you've written, I, I was kind of going through and I literally went to our refrigerator and started thinking, okay, one, two, three, four. And I think I eat pretty healthy. It's tough. I, I was thinking I'm probably 20 to 25 on a good week. Any practical suggestions for folks that want to bump that up? I mean, there's some obvious ones, but can you, can you walk us through the, the practical side of getting to 30? Or, and I know 30 is not a magical number. It's just the way the survey was set up. But getting closer to that ultimate target that you've thrown out in some of your things. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you, can cheat, you can cheat a little bit. <laughs> One thing I did, uh, I, I found myself doing before the pandemic is I would go to a local grocery store that had like a salad bar type, uh, you know, set up where, uh, you know, they had all kinds of 
salad, mm-hmm. you know, ingredients. Yeah, yeah, and, just all the whole spectrum. Yeah, and for for breakfast, I grab a few blueberries, a few blackberries, a few raspberries, you know, some sunflower seeds and other nuts and seeds and chia seeds and uh, you know all the salad ingredients. But the key is, you know, you you only need like a couple of blueberries, right? You don't. I think it's it's a it's a different way of looking yes. at nutrition, right? Where exactly. you're more of a hunter gatherer, right? It's not like if you're a hunter gatherer, you know, in our ancient evolutionary past, you're gonna you're gonna come come across some, you know, massive blueberry, you know, farm, <laughs> and you're like gonna pick hey you know, twenty pounds of blueberries <laughs> and you know just have a a blueberry feast. No, no, you know, you might find a, a few small wild blueberry right. plants, and it's seasonal, right? And and so we just didn't have blueberry farms in our ancient evolutionary past. And so, hunt, you know, hunter gatherers they they had little bits of the, the wild blueberries sure. and maybe the raspberries would come into season, and they have some of those. And they knew where to find the the the, the seeds and nuts, but they're not you know not feasting on one product, right? To to really have a meal, they you know they're probably sampling small amounts of many different things. Well, I think that's a and huge so if you point. Go to a salad, yeah, if you go to a salad bar like that, you can just have a couple of, yeah. a, a few of everything. Yeah. And and then at the end, you have this nice big salad with, and, you know, I would, at times I would count over 50 different sure. plant species. So, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, that's one way to kind of become a hunter-gatherer again, right? And it's all fresh and it's put out daily and uh, you know, not, not a lot of energy expenditure right. <laughs> in that hunter gatherer activity, but it's something that I think mimics what, what we as humans would have done throughout our evolution. And, uh, you know, of course in the Ted talk, I, I talk about another way that you can kind of guarantee that you get 30 plants. Well, not, let's go ahead and jump into that. that. That was one of my last yeah, questions, not, but let's jump in the, yeah. the, the 30 plant smoothie. Was that something you did yeah. on a, you know, you did it for once a week or does it last only a couple of days? What, what was your strategy with that? Oh, actually, yeah, so, l- 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 let's not yeah. talk as if everybody's heard you. Basically he goes, he gets 30 different varieties and he throws it into a smoothie and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, the, this was just something that I thought of when I saw the data, you know, even before the data were published, it's like, you know, as microbiome scientists, we're like, you know, the, uh, a really diverse microbiome is like the holy grail, right? It's like, gosh, that's what we all want. But how do you get that? How do you get that? And then, you know, if the number of different plants you eat is linearly, you know, almost linearly related to how many different plant species you eat, um, why not go out and eat a lot of different plants, like over 30 every day? And I mean, I was kind of going overboard. It's like, you know, um, yeah, 30 a week is great, but what, what if I had 30 a day, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that sounds even better. And I, I do want to take one tiny step backward because it's really important to, to understand the biology between why eating different plant species impacts the diversity of the gut microbiome. Okay. And it comes down to this fact that plants are living organisms. They have their own microbiomes. And so just like us, if they didn't have a microbiome and a diverse microbiome, they also couldn't survive. And so inside the plant, in all, you know, what plants have these channels that go through the stems and the leaves, inside the plant 
are what are called endophytes. And you can look this up. It's, it's a, an area of research in plant biology. And these are the bacteria that live inside the plant. And the example I like to use is a three to four leaf spinach plant has over 800 different types of bacteria inside the plant that you can't wash off that when you eat the plant, you eat 800 different types of bacteria. So undoubtedly, let's say you're eating a thousand just for simplicity's sake with each plant and you have 30, you're eating 30,000 different strains of bacteria. And that's a lot of diversity. Mm. And some of those may be able to colonize your, your gut and stick around and some maybe just pass through, but we're also learning. It doesn't really, it's, it's not essential the back that the bacteria stick around. They don't have to colonize the gut, gut to affect our physiology. And we could go into why that's true, but they can impact our physiology just by passing through. Um, and so, yeah, these endophytes are important. And if we look at plants as not just a source of fiber, a source of, you know, nutrients and, uh, vitamins and minerals, but also a source of bacteria and that the more different types of plants you eat, the more bacteria or the more different types of bacteria you consume, then that kind of becomes the objective. And, and then, you know, Without having access to a salad bar, it's really hard to, you know, I'm not going to keep 30 different plants in my fridge, right? Because, you know, you, you can't. It just doesn't last, yeah. It, it spoils, right? right it right. doesn't last. And so you're either going to have the hunter-gatherer approach where you go to the salad bar every day and you just like pick a few of everything or being like, a, you know, modern urban American, I, I want something I can just pull out of the fridge, <laughs> to be honest. And so. I thought well, I'm just going to go get 30 different plants and put it in a blender with six, six cups of water. And then I'm just going to put that in Mason jars and put it in the fridge and I'll have some every day. And I thought, you know, when I first did that, I, I had never known anyone else to do that. So I was kind of experimenting on myself really, but I put these, you know, maybe eight, nine jars of one quart jars, Mason jars in the fridge and went through the first jar. And, you know, I take like what might be the equivalent of four, ice cubes worth okay, and and put that in a bigger quart jar and then squeeze some lemon or lime in it, you know, for dinner and then drink it like a shake. And uh-huh. I, I've come to love it. Actually. I love the taste. So you're still doing it. Yeah. I still yeah. do it every day. And I'm, I've got my last serving tonight of a batch that I think I made like two months ago. Okay. So it and lasts. This is, this is something you're yeah, throwing well, in the freezer. The surprise. That's what I was getting at. Right. Is I was totally surprised. Cause I thought, you know, after a week, surely I'm going to have to throw right, it out. Right? right. But then a month goes by and it's fine. just in your fridge. You know how when you open something that's gone off, it goes uh-huh, like that? Uh-huh. that generally doesn't happen. And, uh-huh. and I think the reason is because it's a living ecosystem, uh-huh. but a very complex ecosystem. And just like in our bodies, if you have a really complex ecosystem, there's there's no way that a, a single microorganism that can overtake and overcome all the other 30,000 microorganisms that are there and outcompete them for those resources. It's a similar principle. And so I think it just doesn't ferment because there's no one organism that can really outcompete the others and proliferate in that environment. Well, I think just the concept probably brings to folks' attention that you're not talking about, you're talking about minuscule pieces of each one because he's making seven to 20, 30 servings of this out of the 30 things with six cups of water. So it's just a tiny bit 
of each of these 30? Yeah, it's, it's probably 10 servings per quart jar times nine. So it's almost 100 servings yeah, yeah. from one batch of 30 plants. And to me, that that's like the perfect combination of getting the diversity, yeah. but I only have to make it once a month or once every two months, right? And so my effort, it's a lot of effort. Don't get me wrong. But just, just a couple times a month though. Yeah. Tops. Yeah. Once yeah. a month or once every two months. And, yeah. and then, you know, every day you have this incredible diversity. And, right. You'll need to send me a picture of the, uh, the refrigerator with the, with the jar sitting in there. Yeah. Yeah. I can That'd be that. awesome. I can, well, I can send you, send you pictures of my next batch. That'd be perfect. That'd you know, be perfect. It, let, let me turn the tables a little bit and, you know, let's, let's talk about an example of a, a situation where things go terribly wrong. Okay. Right. And, the classic example in our modern uh, environment is C. difficile infection or C. diff infection, right? Where you may know someone who's had C. diff infection. And essentially, this is a, a, a bacterium that really just takes over and outcompetes other bacteria and, and starts to create havoc and begins to destroy your own gut lining. And this is a terrible condition. And one of the biggest risk factors for getting a C. diff infection is having a series of antibiotic uh, treatments. And so, you know, you may have antibiotic and it for a particular infection and, and it doesn't resolve. And so you have a second course of antibiotics and then maybe a third course of antibiotics. And by the third course, your gut microbiome has become so dysregulated and yeah. so diminished in its diversity that it's like C. diff comes along and they're like, hey, there's no competition. I'm going to make hay, right? It's like my turn. Right. And, and then you have this situation where one species, one strain totally dominates. dominates the environment. And what, what, are, what are people finding is the best treatment for C. difficile infection? a complete fecal microbiota transport transplant. So they, they essentially can take the fecal microbiome from a donor, a healthy donor, and then transplant that to the patient wow. that has the infection. And it resolves the infection around 90% of the time. Wow. And so here's this whole sequence, right? Where you diminish the diversity with a series of different antibiotics mm -hmm. over time. C. diff, which is often present but can't compete, can now compete and proliferate. You get the infection, uh, affects your whole body, uh, your cognitive function, your mood, uh, your health. And then the best treatment that's available is to take a really complex ecosystem from someone else that's healthy and transplant it into the patient where they're microbiome is compromised. This wouldn't really be related, but it's a good spin off of what you're talking about here. How about something like celiac where your, your absorption is much less effective than it might otherwise be? Is that a factor in this or is that completely a different conversation? Does it affect the microbiome? Do somebody with celiac, I, I'm asking this selfishly, all three of our kids have celiac. So is that something that that person needs to be more aware of, or this is a completely different conversation? Yeah, I, I think that that's a question that just needs to be studied empirically. It's, it's quite possible that this approach would be, 
be effective. But I think many people with these gut conditions have diet sensitivities. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it just hasn't been studied adequately. I think the prediction is that this kind of diversity approach to the diet could be could be really be- it has the potential to be really beneficial and i after i gave the ted talk my my coach who is coaching the tedx mile high program she produced a series of tiktok videos and uh, i've seen some of the comments of you know people that saw it and tried it themselves and there were individuals who had you know self reported difficulties you know consuming vegetables and fibrous foods and they they said that, that you know these are case studies so we need sure, clinical sure. trials Edible but ones. they said they were able to tolerate this and that they felt better within days you know, within a matter of three or four days and so i think it's just a, it's an empirical question i mean theory behind it is really strong if you think about the plants all the plants that we get at the grocery store as far as we know, these are healthy plants, right? So each and every one of those plants has a healthy microbiome. So we're relying on their health to transfer to our health. Do we know all the mechanisms? Absolutely not. Are the mechanisms complex? Definitely. But the theory behind diversity and health is is really strong. So let's transition because a lot of folks are like, oh my gosh, I want to hear about this mental health stuff. Bring us to that. Ex- explain... The, this connection between the microbiome and mental health. And if we want to dip our toe into anxiety and depression and, so, and some of those things too, just run with that. Let's see where it goes. Cause I think folks are fascinated by these possibilities. Yeah. I think there's several le- level levels to this question. Um, one is more about the diet and I'll start there, but then uh, also talk about some of our research where we can take a single strain of bacterium and, improve mental health outcomes, which shows the power of the, these bacteria. So the first thing to say about the microbiome diet and the microbiome and mental health is there's a really exciting new area of psychiatry, uh, which is called nutritional psychiatry. And um, it's exciting because it's really effective. And there was a meta-analysis, and a, meta, a meta-analysis is essentially a study where they look at lots of different published studies and yeah. consider them all together and do statistical analysis to see if there's any, um, you know, clear overriding statistical effect based on all of the published studies. And they did a meta-analysis with what they called the whole dietary changes or whole dietary interventions. And essentially what they were doing is they were in some cases, looking at people that were just from, you know, the population, the community, who didn't technically have a clinical diagnosis of depression, but there were also studies where people did have a clinical diagnosis of depression, and they also looked at anxiety, which is important as well. And the interventions are whole dietary interventions, and of course, because there's you know 19 different studies they don't all have the same dietary intervention, but when they talk about the common themes of these dietary interventions that were used, well, first of all, what did they find? They find that these whole dietary interventions decrease depressive symptoms in people that, you know, were not clinically diagnosed with depression, but may have had some depression symptoms and also had antidepressant effects in people with a clinical diagnosis Mm. of depression. 
And furthermore, there was evidence for reduced symptoms of anxiety. And so then what the, then the question is, what, what, what was the dietary intervention? And if you look at all of them together, essentially it's, I mean, you can encapsulate it by saying a Mediterranean style diet. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so in other words, reducing the intake of high fat foods, especially trans fats, high sugar foods, convenience foods, takeout foods, ultra processed foods, and replacing those with fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, olive oil, and occasionally fish, which is essentially a Mediterranean sure, style sure. Yeah, absolutely. diet, right? And is high in diversity. If you think about the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts, the seeds, they all have their own microbiomes. Olive oil has its own microbiome. You may not have thought of that, but olive oil comes from olives, which is a plant, it's plant-based food. And if it's not highly processed, it still has these bacteria in the olive I oil. I did not count that one. <laughs> yeah, so count that one. 26. <laughs> uh, there you go. And uh, spices, you know, uh, thyme, rosemary, basil, you know, those all count. Those are plants. We can come back to the, the idea of whether the plant has to be alive or not, you know, whether, whether the bacteria has to be alive or not. I would argue that it doesn't, and we have very good reasons for saying that. But that that was the theme, and 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 the point is that just changing the diet can have antidepressant effects. How great is that? I mean, it huge. It's huge. It's it's so important to understand. It's hard to implement, right? Because we all like takeout foods. We all like, you know, these convenience, yeah, convenience. foods, high fat exactly. foods, high high sugar foods. And one one thing that's not been answered, you know, could you get your thirty plants a day? And then still have the cherry pie, you know, right, right, and still be fine. And yeah, I, right. I would say probably you would. The reason, the reason that the the nutritional, uh, the whole dietary intervention is probably working is because of the the diversity of the the dietary uh, intake. And it, if you're eating a lot of ultra processed foods, you're just not going to be hungry for thirty different plants. Right? You're not going to eat those, right. and so. What we haven't answered yet is if you like a little bit of ultra processed foods and, but you still get your 30 plants a day, you know, is can that offset the negative elements? And there's a, there's a paper that I just, I thought was really funny um, when I saw it and I have no idea why they did this study, but <laughs> they, I, I think it illustrates a principle and that's why I'm talking. That's why I'm bringing it up. And basically they, they found that if you, if you eat a hamburger, you have an inflammatory response and we haven't really talked about inflammation, but inflammation is really important here. And that's really the focus of my work in the context of the relationship between diet and, you know, our gut microbiome and, and mental health is something called inflammation. And so they show that the, the hamburger induces an inflammatory response. And, you know, we don't know all the mechanisms involved, but uh, part of that is because hamburger contains certain types of, fats that we know are inflammatory and induce inflammation. But what they showed is if you put a slice of avocado on your hamburger, then you don't have an inflammatory response to the hamburger. No way. Yeah. So wow. it's like, you know, it's not one slice. I literally, it's not a zero sum it. game, right? It's, right? it's not like it, you ruined you know, it with a hamburger. Of this, 50% of that. Right. It's like the, the avocado can trump the hamburger. Wow. 
right? And that's uh, that's really cool, right? If you know, if you have the avocado, then you you eliminate the negative consequences right. of the hamburger, right? And so, I, I I bring up that question about you know, can we offset eating our cherry pie with having thirty plant cocktail? I th- I think it's a real possibility, right? That we can not only we can kind of have our cake and eat it too, right? Where we, as long as we get that diversity and that, and we think if that really is king and that trumps everything else, then you can maintain health by making sure you have that every day. So you made a comment in your TED talk about it changed your life or it was a life-changing step or something like that with this 30 per day drink. Now, you were most likely, I don't know you specifically, but most likely you were relatively healthy before that. And so this was one big oh, yeah. step up. Yeah. What did, Was that an overstatement for the purpose of TED Talk? Did What types of things did you notice that literally changed your life coming from being pretty healthy prior to this? Yeah, yeah. So a few things. You know, it wasn't just for the TED Talk. I did notice uh, what I think are really significant changes uh, relatively quickly. And the it, context is important here as well. So I'm, I'm getting a bit older. And as you age, as all of us age, there's a process called inflammaging, where as we get older, we become more and more prone to inflammation. And we become more and more prone to inflammatory conditions. And, you know, classic example is, is cardiovascular disease, right? We, you know, we don't have cardi- cardiovascular disease when we're 20 and sure. uber healthy. And so when I was younger, I did triathlons and track and was very athletic and was very, very healthy eating my Wyoming, you know, <laughs> diet of meat and two veg, you know, growing up in a Wyoming family. But as I get older, I, I notice that I become more sensitive to things like excessive carbohydrates during the day. I just get drowsy. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, my brain kind of shuts off and really undesirable. Uh, you know, for someone who relies on, you know, my job is, as a university professor, professor is really based on cognitive functioning, right? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. If my exactly. brain's not working, I'm, I'm right. you know, I can't do my job. Right. And so anything that impairs that functioning, I, I view as a negative, as a negative thing. And, and so what I, what I, one thing I really noticed, two things really, one is, and I still believe this to be the case, is that I need less sleep. Mm, and you just sold to, me. You sold to me. To function. That's awesome. That's huge. Right? In fact, I don't set my alarm anymore. It's very predictable. I I will wake up six hours after going to sleep wow. at night. So and you and you feel fine. You're not feeling I, depleted. If I'm asleep at ten, then I will wake up at four, and I'll be like, "All right, time to go," hmm. and jump out of bed and feel great and feel great all day and not get tired all day. And I, honestly, I, I couldn't do that before. Interesting. Um, That's a big one. You know, my kids joke about it. They're like, you know, <laughs> get up at 4.30 and, you know, stay up till 10.30. It's like, you're nuts. <laughs> and, you're um, going crazy, Dad. Yeah, yeah. There was a Calvin and Hobbes comic that my son showed me last night. And, you know, it's Calvin saying, parents are like, not really normal, you know, getting up at six and going for a run in the sleet. And, you know, and maybe you've read that one, but he thought that was very funny because 
you know, that's essentially me. You know, I get up in the morning and run if, if that's what I'm into, you know, during the winter typically. And that's all I could do during the pandemic really is, is run. So I was running every morning and now I've switched to swimming and I, I do it in the afternoon cause I just like being outdoors sure. uh, in the sun as well. So yeah, less sleep and also less, uh, at least in my, my, you know, self-report better cognitive functioning during the day and sustained cognitive functioning. And I, I, I don't, I, I try to avoid caffeine because I don't, I don't need caffeine when I wake up. I feel great. It's like wow. the best time of the day. And, and then that's sustained all, all day long. And, and I, I honestly don't think I ever experienced that even when I was younger and to be in that situation now when I'm older, it's like, Oh wow, that's awesome. That's yeah. huge. I, I think you've gotten people's attention just with that statement alone. They're like, wait, I need to rewind this and hear this part again. What? This is significant. Now, one of the other things you mentioned that all the pet lovers listening are going to love is having dogs, cats in your homes that brings healthy bacteria in as well. Can you talk us through, because most people are like, oh man, that makes the house dirty or that, you know, whatever. And you're saying, no, 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 no. That's the good kind. Yeah. So this is a whole different, different uh, area that's also very important. And when we think about diversity uh, of microbial exposure, right? What we eat is one element of that, but what we often forget and it's vastly understudied. And so we can't really be definitive as definitive about it is what we breathe. Mm. You know, we breathe in over a billion bacteria every day. And then the question is, where are those bacteria coming from? You know, if you're in a a really sterile setting and, you know, the only contribution to the bacteria are other human beings, maybe that's not the best Mm -hmm. and most diverse microbial environment to be breathing in. And so how do you diversify what you breathe in? Uh, Clearly having pets matters and clear example of the benefit of pets is that children that grow up in a home with dogs, the first two years of life has have a lower risk of allergic asthma later on in life. So having a pet protects you against allergic asthma Mm. and, you know, those kinds of observations. And so also being just being exposed to nature can expose you to a more diverse microbial environment. Mm. Uh, And here we're talking about healthy ecosystems like a park or a forest, a nearby forest or a grassland that's maybe near your house. That's away from the asphalt and and the urban environment where you can find a, a diverse ecosystem again, you know, think back to the ecosystem analogy. And so when you, when you're thinking about being exposed to, a diverse microbial environment that you can breathe in, you can enhance the diversity of your own home by having a pet, right? Because the pet has its own microbiome. It's very different from ours. They tend to go outside. They bring dirt back in. Dirt's great. We love dirt. Soil's great. All those footprints you see, you know, after <laughs> rain and yes, you know, they're all over our house. Like, ah, <laughs> damn cat, damn dog. You know, it's like not again. But all that kind of dirt just that's great for us. That's more diversity. This is all tied in with something called the hygiene hypothesis, which 
my esteemed colleague from University College London, Graham Rook, kind of rebranded as the old friends hypothesis. It's also been referred to as the biodiversity hypothesis by researchers in Finland. And it all comes down to this idea that as humans have moved into urban environments, we've lost contact with the diverse microbial environments that we encountered in our evolutionary past. And we can restore that to some extent by re-engaging with nature. Finland developed a program with this basic understanding that was run from 2008 to 2018. It was called the, the Finnish Allergy Program, 2008 to 2018. And essentially, they decided that they were going to implement a program over 10 years to try to reduce the incidence of allergy and the cost, the economic cost of allergy to the country and improve the quality of life of their citizens by introducing this concept of healthy allergy. And as opposed to avoiding right, exposure right. to the nature sterile. of you know, natural environment and right. different foods and dogs and cats and all these sources of incredible diversity, instead of avoiding that and isolating yourself, creating this idea of healthy allergy, meaning, yes, you're you're, you have an allergy, but that doesn't mean you can't go out and enjoy life, right? And engage with your environment in a way that is going to enhance your, your, the diversity of your microbiome. And, and you know what? It worked. The program worked on a national level wow. to reduce the, the incidence and the cost uh, of allergies. At, in, at in all ages. Finland. We're, we're yeah, not just talking... Ages. Yeah. infants, two-year-olds, like this was influencing infants a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, et cetera. A, a lifespan, Interesting. Lifespan, lifespan project. Huh. And that approach worked. And a big part of that was nature step, getting, uh, re, re-engaging with nature. And the Finns have done a fantastic job of exploring these ideas. And these are very difficult ideas to sure. to, to Yeah, study. you talk about variables. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so just to take a step back, you know, I, the last 20 years of my research have been studied on one strain of a bacterium isolated from the soil. Wow. Right. One strain and 20 years of research. And we published a study in 2007 when I was still at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. We had basically immunized mice with this bacterium. And then we wanted to know how do the lungs, and initially you put the bacteria into the lungs because it's in the soil, you breathe it in, and that's how we get exposed. Okay. And when we did that, we saw that in the brain, it activated a very small group of serotonin neurons in the brain. And very strongly, what captured our imagination was those were the serotonin neurons because we were like serotoninologists and we knew a lot about serotonin. Those were the neurons that we thought were antidepressant serotonin neurons. They projected areas of the brain like the hippocampus involved in cognitive mm-hmm. function, anxiety and fear, and also the prefrontal cortex involved in affective and cognitive function. And so we, we predicted, well, you know, surely we should also be able to document antidepressant-like behavioral effects. And so we did experiments to test that, and that's what we found. Mm-hmm. So just exposing the mice to these bacteria had these antidepressant behavioral effects, had neurochemical effects that we were able to measure. 
there were neurochemical changes in the cortex that were, very, that were identical to what you would see if you got an antidepressant drug. And then we published that in 2007. And, you know, that was kind of before the whole gut microbiome right. explosion, right? And we, we had a press release and it happened to be on April Fool's Day, <laughs> the press release. <laughs> and, you know, so people are calling and like, is this an April are you Fool's joke? You know, you, you inject a bacterium, you get antidepressant effects and, you know, um, activate serotonin neurons in the brain. And we're like, no, it's not an <laughs> April Fool's joke. And the next day, I think I had 14 live radio interviews, you wow. know, BBC Ireland and BBC UK and went to the Bristol studios, the BBC studios and the Guardian, you know, had a piece and the economist ended up having a piece called, you know, good bacteria, bad bacteria. And so it really captured the public imagination, you know, and within months there were like half a million hits on Google, this idea that bacteria could be antidepressant, especially bacteria from the soil. And, and, you know, then people are thinking, what about gardening? What about mountain biking? What about hiking? Yeah. You know, and being outdoors and we're like, well, you know, theoretically, yes, that, that should work. We don't but know, but it, we don't know. And it, we it, haven't it like, you know, done sense. that experiment. But now they have, right. <laughs> it's like the researchers in Finland have, and they, they just published, I just think this is such a monumental study and a milestone in our understanding of this particular question of, you know, can you engage with complex environmental ecosystems, nature, and improve outcomes? And what they did was very clever. They brought basically the forest floor. Real, real quick, who was the lead yeah. author on this one? Do you know, Tuff, you yeah, Aki Sinkinen is uh, the senior author. Can you spell it? Kinnan, I think it's S-I-N-K-K-O-N-E-N, but that might okay. be slightly off. Um, I, I've met him. He's he's just a he's top-notch researcher. They have an amazing team, um, you know. And and this was the human study. So wow. they brought essentially a forest floor, a healthy forest floor, into a daycare center. Wow. You know, you know, my kids' daycare center had this like big outdoor area with, you right. know, dirt, sure. you know, a few trees. We helped plant a tree there one day and, but they just brought this forest floor in. They encouraged the kids to play with it and, you know, handle it. And over a period of a month and, you know, the control was a daycare center that didn't have this intervention, just had the normal outdoor play area. And they found that just being exposed to this, forest floor material that was kind of trucked in altered the microbiome of the children. Wow. And, wow. and most importantly, when they, when they, they were able to take a blood sample from the children and you know, my kids hate needles. So I don't know how, they, <laughs> how they did this, but they got a blood sample from the children and they measured these immune molecules that we know are really critical for keeping inflammation under control. And uh, they're called interleukin-10 and, mm -hmm. you know, the exact yeah. molecules aren't important, but one's interleukin-10 and the other is TGF-beta, transforming growth factor beta. And we, we knew, and, and, and to, to show how all this ties in together, we knew that the, the bacterium that I study, which I've, I haven't even mentioned its name, is called Mycobacterium vacci. We knew that Mycobacterium vacci can prevent allergic airway inflammation in mouse models. And we knew that that protection from inflammation depends on those same two molecules, interleukin 10 and TGF-beta. So we, know that we knew that the soil bacterium could 
increase interleukin 10, increase TGF beta, and it could prevent allergic airway inflammation in models of allergic asthma. And now in children, they bring in this forest floor, which has lots of soil, right? Soil bacteria, kids play with it. And then after a month, they have more TGF beta and interleukin 10 in their blood. It's like, wow, it really does work, you know? And if you have more IL-10, you have more TTF-beta, you have more protection from allergic airway inflammation, inflammation, allergic asthma, and we think psychiatric disorders later on in life. And so why do I say that? It's because it's becoming very clear that inflammation is a risk factor, not just for what we typically consider to be inflammatory conditions like allergic asthma, um, cardiovascular disease, type 1 diabetes, Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, etc. But also psychiatric disorders. And this became clear early on with depression. And that's very well established. You can actually cause depression by giving one of these uh, inflammatory immune molecules to humans. Um, and then the patients become depressed after getting the treatment. And, um, and so we've known that for a long time with depression, and now it's clear with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And an early indication of that, and I, I think this is really important to, to kind of understand, and why, why it's so clear now that it's a risk factor. There was a study of 2,600 U.S. Marines, and they, they took blood samples at boot camp, and they measured this biomarker of inflammation, which is called C-reactive protein or CRP. And you can actually have CRP measured at, you know, at your, your family doctor's office. I sometimes request a CRP assessment in my annual health assessment. And the American Heart Association has developed these thresholds for CRP concentration. So if you have below 1.0 milligram per liter then you have no risk of cardiovascular disease. If you have between one and three, you have moderate risk for cardiovascular disease. And if you have above three, you have high risk of cardiovascular disease. So here's a a clinical cutoff for risk of developing inflammatory disease. And what they found in these US Marines is individuals who had higher CRP when they were at boot camp we're at much higher risk of developing PTSD symptoms after deployment overseas. Wow. Three to six months after being deployed. So if individuals came into boot camp and they just had high elevation, higher uh, inflammatory markers, those are the individuals that went on to develop, to, to develop PTSD later on. Wow. Another more recent study, it was just published this year, actually. They looked at the 101st Airborne uh, Rangers in in Kentucky, very elite force, and they they did the same thing. But they measured lots of other blood biomarkers. They did lots of surveys. You know, asked about sleep quality and uh, anxiety symptoms and other clinical symptoms, etc. And then they were deployed to Afghanistan specifically. And then again, three to six months after deployment, they came, they brought them back and they assessed for PTSD symptoms. And then they can use this new technique called machine learning to take all those hundreds and hundreds of features that they measured at boot camp and say, which of those features 
predicts PTSD symptoms and PTSD severity after deployment. And among the highest ranking features were multiple, not just one, but multiple biomarkers of inflammation. And that included C-reactive protein, uh, which had been shown before, but also the absolute number of monocytes. So monocytes are a type of immune cell that's released from the bone marrow, circulates through the blood. And importantly, we think this is important, those monocytes traffic to the brain. And if they have an inflammatory phenotype, they can induce inflammation in the brain. And we think the the downstream consequences of PTSD and depression and other psychiatric disorders. So the more monocytes, these monocytes, absolute numbers, were able to predict who went on to develop PTSD. And the final, there were, there were more markers. Another one was eicosanoids, which are inflammatory lipids. And so you can see that, you know, it's not, it's not one inflammatory. Right. It's the marker. diversity it's like you've this, been talking about. The diversity of, yeah. Uh, of, in, you know, inflammatory markers or, you know, diverse inflammatory processes. And that's why the microbiome is such a good target, right? Because we can give someone a COX-2 inhibitor, right? This is a drug that will block the enzyme that produces these inflammatory lipids, the eicosanoids, right? It's a very good anti-inflammatory drug, but it's not preventing the increase in interleukin-1 beta and the increase in TNF-alpha and the increase in uh, these monocytes and these inflammatory monocytes and all of their products. So inflammation is a very uh, complex cellular mediated process. And when you use a drug like a COX-2 inhibitor, it's inhibiting one enzyme that may produce one class of inflammatory agents and it's not doing anything to the other agents. And so, but the, the gut microbiome seems to be able to influence inflammation across the board. Uh, it's multi-targeted in, in other words. And that's what's so exciting about it. And I'm watching the time and you've been so generous. I've got one more question folks are, I'm sure begging me to ask, and it's not, a, I'm not intending this as a fix all, but is there any indication that the probiotics and prebiotics that are so popular now have any influence? A lot, obviously the, the, the best option are the things you've been talking us through but is there anything out there recently showing us that, yeah, it's not the thing. You've got a lot better options, but it could be helpful. Or do we just not know with either the pre or the pro? Two things. Prebiotics, probably a great idea um, because prebiotics are essentially food for the, the gut microbiome. Prebiotics are complex fibers that are found in plants that human cells cannot metabolize, but bacteria can. And it turns out that it's the good bacteria that can metabolize these prebiotics. And so when you eat fiber, and this could be fiber in plant, you know, fruits and vegetables as part of your normal diet, again, the 30 plants thing, or you can take a fiber supplement like psyllium flakes or other types of fiber, right? That, that can be used as food for the bacteria. And then you can allow expansion of these, these bacteria that have beneficial effects. So, that's kind of a broad, still a broad spectrum approach. When you get to the single probiotic, it's much more targeted. And here it may be that probiotics may be more effective in individuals that we already know have elevated inflammation, right? So we actually conducted a clinical trial in U.S. veterans with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was done together with Lisa Brenner at the VA in, in, in Denver and her team. 
we used a particular probiotic that that we knew had anti-inflammatory effects, and there was evidence that it also had immunoregulatory effects, which can be beneficial. And we again looked at CRP because we know that CRP is this risk factor. And what we found is when we gave the probiotic for eight weeks, we compared CRP at the beginning of the trial with CRP at the end of the trial. Uh, we saw reductions in individuals that got the probiotic, but with a p-value of 0. 0.056, which is not technically significant, right, right. but it's a bit it's a bit of splitting hairs, you know, at that point. And we're doing a new trial, and we're, we've optimized the trial by only allowing participants that have CRP above a certain threshold. Because uh, the problem with the first trial is we had some people didn't have any CRP, and mm-hmm. if you don't have any, then you can't go down. Can't change and, uh, it. That's why we we uh, didn't see a stronger effect. We were quite sure about that. And so in that, you know, that's evidence that a probiotic strategy can work to reduce what are known risk factors, in other words. And the other thing that we saw was uh, we exposed participants to the most stressful thing that we can do to human beings in a, in a clinical setting that's ethical. I remember you is, talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Have them give up, get up and give a, a speech in front <laughs> of a camera. What we found is the people that had the probiotic had an attenuated heart uh, tachycardia or increase in heart rate in response to the stressor. And we're starting to think that this wait, wait, wait. is uh, with the probiotic. It was yeah, elevated. When they had the probiotic, it, no, it reduced oh, their it stress-induced okay. heart rate. So it, it it reduced their reactivity to the stressor. And we think that this is important because, it, particularly in PTSD, increased arousal, which is which includes activation of the sympathetic nervous system, is part of the PTSD condition. It's part right. of part of the right. diagnostic. Criteria, right? And you just can't shut off that hypervigilance and arousal. And the probiotics seem to to shut that off. Interesting. Uh, at least as measured by the stress-induced heart rate, increase in the heart rate. So we're very intrigued by that. We have some uh, preclinical studies that support that, that we haven't published yet, that we are really pointing us in the direction that somehow these probiotics seem to be altering the autonomic nervous system. We don't completely understand how they do that. But the, the the thing I want this is and this is very important. The thing I want to caution people about is that these probiotic effects they're very strain specific. So, for example, you can't just you know you can't you know if someone tells you you know your cousin or you know friend or family says oh take Lactobacillus ruteri you know as a probiotic there. Are, dozens of strains of lactobacillus ruteri that are available commercially and are on the market. And what we know about probiotics, particularly some people have suggested the term psychobiotic, you know, where a probiotic has mental health benefits, particularly in the case of these psychobiotics, they're very strain specific. And so you can have two bacteria that are of the same species, but different strains, and one is effective and one is not. And so it's not enough to know this, the species name, lact- the genus and species, Lactobacillus ruderi. You also have to know the strain designation, which is a series of letters and numbers after the species name. And so there's a tremendous need for education of the consumer. What are active strains and what are not active strains? And 
there is one organization that I can point people toward that is 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 working very hard to kind of bridge that gap. I think if you just type in probiotic guide, you, you'll find it online. And what they've done is they have a section for children and they have a section for adults. And they they have a series of clinical conditions like diarrhea, constipation. That makes it specific versus just a generic, these have billions of different, yeah, good. Mood or affect. And they have three levels of evidence, one, two, and three. Like how good is the evidence for this probiotic, for this condition? They have one listed for mood and affect. Okay. You know, that's based on the, the fact that there have been multiple clinical trials with that combination with positive outcomes in studies that were unbiased and where they identified this, the strains of the probiotics that are being used. Okay. And they also, they also identified the commercial products. And so that's, that's important for the current consumer because you might buy a probiotic that is just a probiotic, right? It's just a probiotic in some exactly. kind of oil or right. you know, inert substance, or it could be a probiotic that's packaged together with a prebiotic, right? And that combination may matter, or maybe there's two strains in one package, right? And that matters. So and that so site will help them determine, oh, yeah, that's the one I need to you, use for me. This particular product, which you can buy at right. your favorite supplier, that product has evidence for being effective. And I think that's the level of scrutiny that's required for the probiotics. And I think we there needs to be an awareness that those things matter, you know, the, the company that makes it matters because you can grow these bacteria in a multitude of different ways, right? With different culture media and different fatty acid substrates in the culture media. And th- these things matter. And, you know, what we're looking for is evidence that they work, right? And you can only develop that evidence through clinical trials and humans. And that's what this group is trying to do. And I, I also have to say, I, I, you know, I bought some probiotics online that you can only buy online and, you know, we've done testing and they just don't contain what they say they contain. Interesting. And so I'd be very cautious, my advice to the consumer, be very cautious if you have a product and they don't list a strain designation. Okay. That's- right. If they say, oh, it contains this bacterium. Right. And you, your first question. Billions and be, billions of them. Billions and billions, but your first question should be, which strain? Mm. I need to know the strain. And if they don't tell you the strain, then uh, frankly, I wouldn't believe it. Because okay. if you don't know the strain, you don't know the product. You know the strain. If you don't know the strain, you don't know what's in the package. Professor Lowry, this is fantastic. You, you had so much for us. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Keep it up. How can people follow you if they want to keep track of what you're doing? I have an account on Twitter, C.A. Lowry, PhD. Perfect. Perfect. And we'll yeah. provide a and, link to that uh, as well. And then the TED Talk is a great place to start. Excellent. Stay in touch. Sounds Feel good. Feel free to contact me directly. I mean, I I try to answer. No, you did great. You, you were great with us. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing everything. Great stuff. Thank you. Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? I am definitely going to be expanding my produce plants going forward. And our two Australian shepherds, Well, they're going to be very glad they got the thumbs up for the way they improve our health by hanging out inside. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. And thanks for sharing the podcast with friends. That makes more of a difference than you know. And we we really, really appreciate it. 
This is our 176th episode, and each one involves about seven hours of work. So sometimes, frankly, I question investing that much time, but when someone tells us it was recommended to them, that definitely brings a smile and makes it worth it. Next week's episode features our most popular guest of all time. Yes, the number one downloaded episode of our 177 episodes through that one. You're welcome to take a guess, but right or wrong, you will absolutely love this hidden gem. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life. The chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives. That is exactly what a catalyst does. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe on YouTube's coaching channel.